continuing in our new members class and looking at our book of church order of the RPCGA. We've been considering the directory of church discipline and we'll continue with that. And then again, if there are any questions, um, I'll stop at certain jurisdictions and if you have any questions that you guys have come up with and that you'd like to share with us, PC, feel free to. Okay, D4, the Presbytery's Jurisdiction. First section refers to the membership of the presbytery. All church officers and members of the congregations are considered to be members of the presbytery. Um, as far as government in the presbytery, the elders are on the rolls um, and also are capable of being removed by the presbytery itself. We also do not have excommunication in our understanding by local sessions. We believe that that is an act of the presbytery as opposed to an act of a local uh, session. And then as far as church sessions where there isn't a full session or a plurality of elders uh, or if a session ceases to exist, meaning there are no, no elders at all, then the presbytery would augment or would add members to that particular session. We talk about in section 3 particular congregations, if they cease to exist, uh, all of the records of that congregation and any of those who would still be members, even if the church dissolves, the presbytery would take them under care and help them figure out how to transfer their membership. And then all baptismal records or disciplinary cases or minutes from the session would all be assumed by the presbytery under which that church or particular congregation existed. If a presbytery ceases to exist, then again the higher court, um, the General Assembly takes care over that specific presbytery and would assign any congregations that remain to other presbyteries in the denomination. If there happens to be a case that was in process when something like this happens, whether at the presbytery level or the session level, then the next highest jurisdiction would take over and seek to continue the adjudication or the handling of whatever matter was outstanding. And then section D5, the judicial process itself, <clears throat> talks about bringing charges by those who have been actually injured or by those who have proper authority. Uh, one of the things that we talk about is it should be serious enough to warrant a trial, like the action itself is serious enough that it would warrant excommunication if the person was unrepentant in it. So this isn't like petty squabbles, this isn't I don't like this, I don't like that, or even a sin that's an infirmity that we're all compassed about with. It wouldn't rise to that level, it needs to be a public scandal. Also, regarding elders and deacons, and actually we find out later, but especially because Scripture insists on this point, you must have two or three witnesses to establish each word, but also generally the rules of our procedures in court is that no fact can be established on the testimony of a singular witness. You need to be multiple facts or multiple witnesses. Uh, filing charges in terms of the judicial process has to do with the clerk. That's the one who takes records on behalf of whatever jurisdiction, session, presbytery, or, or uh we don't file charges in the General Assembly. That's only for doctrinal matters or matters of government in the Book of Church Order. 
And then the form of charges. This is very important. Um, we don't take hearsay. We believe that if somebody's going to make a charge, they should put it in writing. And they should set forth what exactly the person did. It can't be this person is um, some unspecified vice that has no particular behavior attached to it. This person is an evil person. Okay, well, that's not actually a specification. This person bashed someone's head in is a specification. Okay, that's murder, right? So you could say there's a particular sin. But if you're just going to say he's a horrible person and I don't like him, that can never be grounds for any kind of judicial process. That might actually be grounds for judicial process against the accuser because it means that they are making slanderous accusations without having evidence. So we require that if someone's going to have a charge to bring, it has to allege offenses. It has to say why those things are against the Bible, specific texts, and they can even make reference to our confession or catechisms, but it must be understandable, it must be serious, it must be proven. And in other words, it can't just be gossip. And that's often what happens in churches is they'll take up gossip, they'll take the side of the slanderer, and then they'll hold that against the other person and expect you to prove your innocence, which is completely ungodly. And then in section D5, section 5, it talks about the contents of charges. Um, specifically, again, what are the facts you relied on? As much detail as possible. We're not talking about milliseconds, but we are talking about, okay, what time, place, circumstances of this alleged offense, and if there are other witnesses or documents that support what you're saying. Now, uh, section 6 talks about the offenses, the type of offenses. There are those that are public or private, and the Bible deals with public offenses as what we call scandals, things done that cause the name of Christ to be brought into disrepute. Private offenses are when someone wrongs you personally. Not that they wrong somebody else, but that they wrong you. And then there is a specific biblical order of how to deal with these things. And as far as our jurisdiction is concerned and what we handle, we don't handle every little squabble that occurs. It has to be something that rises to the level of a public scandal, not something that a few people are offended by. Unless you go to the person in Matthew 18's orders to seek to recover them and help them repent of their sin that they've committed against you, and then they refuse. And then you bring witnesses and then they refuse before witnesses, and then it's a public scandal. But prior to that, everything should be handled privately. Also, we talk about, in Section 7, prerequisites for charges. Um, in these matters, you can't bring it first to trial. You have to actually go and try to recover the person, especially in the matters of private offense, but even other things. You should seek reconciliation. You should try to work things out between two people, as opposed to going right to, oh, I'm offended, going to take this to the session, going to complain about this person. No, you have to seek reconciliation. And then in Section 8, we actually require the jurisdictions of our church to warn a person 
if they're going to bring something in writing against another person, that th this can't be frivolous or you're liable to be disciplined yourself. Don't be bringing up charges against people, one, that are not actual sins, two, that you have no evidence for, or three, that are so small and petty that you're wasting everybody's time. So, you know, this is important. Um, they could be censured. And it's like the Bible says, if you accuse a person of a capital offense, you get put to death. So, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. You seek to offend somebody in a certain way by slandering them, you might actually get censured. So we warn in those cases. And then if the specific judicial body, like Session or Presbytery, considers it to be seemingly provable um, and also truthful, uh, then they would admit of that written charge, but not before then. So there has to be some preliminary investigation and fact-finding to figure out, not is this done in the right form, but is there actual substance to this? Is there something substantial that would cause the name of Christ to be brought into disrepute? Is it a public scandal? Have they tried to work things out? Are they just making things up? Things like that. And then... Um, we talk about the warrant. What are the grounds on which, or the warrant, where we would actually bring something to trial? So again, it has to be a public scandal in either the area of faith or morals. Um, and we don't think that, well, you didn't technically follow all these procedures and check all the right boxes, so we're not going to let you try this. Sometimes secular courts will do that. They'll have a, a case that the judge believes is substantially wrong on somebody's part, but be, based off of a technicality, they'll cast it out. We don't do that. We believe that if there is something that actually is for the glory of God and the good of the person who's really offending, that we should help correct the, the technical problem so that we can deal with the substantial problem. And that's w with the same spirit, as I mentioned in the first lesson, that is that the administrative part is to serve the moral part or the spiritual interests of the people. The spiritual interests are to be served by the administrative, not overridden. And so that's one instance of that. Um, help to amend the form if it's not in the proper form. If you think, if the judicial body thinks that's serious enough that we need to bring this to a trial. Then parties are notified of the time, date, and place for the trial Whoever is accused is cited with a minimum of 30 working days before they're to appear. And working days, five working days a week. So that would be six weeks. They have to be given a six-week notice in that case. And then if the person accused would like to extend, they may. They have a right to extend or request an extension. The trial itself. Okay, let me stop there, actually. Any questions in D4 or D5 concerning Presbytery's jurisdiction or the judicial process? No? Okay. Then the trial. Um, the trials happen at the presbytery level. The meetings are open. If it's thought that it needs to be private for some particular reason, for personal issues, uh, two-thirds of those who make up the court have to agree to do that. Otherwise, we assume it's always open to the public. There must be at least three men who act as jurists and 
anyone, it doesn't even say member of our congregation or our presbytery, anyone who can make a case against a person can appear before our court, our courts. No person shall be deprived of the right to set forth evidence or even to argue that scripture was violated or that our standards apply to this case. We allow anyone to appear because the whole point is to figure out the facts of the case and what happened and whether the person needs to repent, that kind of thing. Uh, If a person refuses to appear and does not come when summoned and does not seek for an extension, they could be tried in their absence. It's not ideal, but that can happen. The clerk of every court in our church is to keep a record of the trial, and if it gets appealed to the next highest level, he's to transmit all the information about what the jurists found, what the facts were presented, any written or spoken evidence that was presented. The, the clerk would record anything that's spoken. Of course, anything printed could be passed along in that way. Now, the accused party, if it does come to trial and a person has been accused, they have a right to counsel, and this could be any member in good standing within the RPCGA, and counsels like an attorney, not an attorney exactly, it's a person who counsels with you. An attorney acts on your behalf. In this in this case, it's a person who counsels you as to what you could say, how you could cross-examine, things like that. Um, if a person is counseling an accused party, they can't judge the case. That's one important principle. Uh, if I were being accused of something, I couldn't sit on my own judicatory and say whether I was guilty or innocent. You can't can't bear witness against yourself for yourself in that sense. And then there's a right of appeal to a party who's accused. Um, Witnesses also cannot be judges, and they make a specific form of swearing by God's grace to speak only the truth. Rules of evidence, we believe evidence must be factual. Um, An accused party has the right to object if they think the evidence is not what a person presents it to be. And then again, there have to be multiple witnesses to establish any specification. He punched me in the face. Well, I'm one witness. Did somebody see him punch me in the face? Not did they see me with a black eye, but did they see the action? So that's the idea. There have to be multiple witnesses for any specification. Um, Also, we believe that a witness has to be able to uh, have the accused party present if possible. So witnesses can't go behind closed doors and and badmouth the accused party. They have to have the person present who's being accused so that they have a, a right, as Scripture says, to hear the accusations made against them and to answer for themselves. And that's actually from the mouth of a heathen in the book of Acts, that you ought not to try people without them being present. And sadly... Churches are notorious for not realizing that this is a biblical principle. It's a principle of nature, actually, that if someone is accused, they have a right to defend themselves. It's part of the ninth commandment, to defend your own good name. So we believe the witness should only speak in the presence of an accused person. Um, Now, as far as evidence, there can be later evidence revealed, and that would cause a retrying of the case. There has to be really good reason why the evidence wasn't presented. Maybe it wasn't uncovered when the first trial happened. But there has to be a very good reason why the person couldn't present evidence previously. 
Okay, then the rules for proceedings of trials. There are two meetings. There's a first one that goes through the basics of it, and then whether it's going to go to a second meeting, and if so, um, what those two meetings, those first two meetings look like. It discusses the rights of an accused per party and the duties of jurists. Then in the seventh section, conclusion of the trial, the decision that the court comes to, the announcing of the sentence, and then the permitting of an appeal to a higher court if applicable. Section 8 deals with a person who's absent and is still tried. If the person cannot be there or will not go there, uh, if a counsel is appointed for the accused party, they will have all the rights of an accused party. So in that case, they would act as an attorney where they're representing the person. And then um, there are cases where a person accuses themselves, where the person will say, I did this wrong thing. All of the ordinary rights that a person has about trial are eliminated because there's no point. They establish the facts themselves by coming as their own accuser and therefore, all the process that we institute to secure the right of an accused person, they've waived that by accusing themselves. They're acknowledging the wrongdoing. And so, in a, in a case like that, um, repentance is started with the confession of a sin. So, we don't discipline an excommunication for, for anything other than unrepentant sins. So, if a person is repentant, they would not be excommunicated. But they may be removed from some privilege. Like if I were a minister and I confessed to some sin that made me a scandal to the church, then I would immediately be removed from the privilege of preaching and teaching. I would have my license suspended. And if I accused myself of that, then I would have to step down. You know, that, that would be the immediate result of that. Okay, so that's section D6 concerning the trial. Any questions about D6? No? Okay. Censure and restoration. Censure is a correction. Um, it's where someone is punished for a specific wrongdoing. And the accused person is to appear for the pronunciation of the sentence against them. At, or, if they decide that they don't want to show up, the accused doesn't want to show up, they may be censured in their absence. We talk about degrees of censure. Admonition, rebuke, suspension excommunication, and deposition. So an admonition is where a person is warned. That's what it means to admonish. Uh, literally, monere is your memory or your mind. So admonere is to put something into your mind. And it's the same in the Greek, actually. The Greek word that's used for admonition is uh, to put something in the mind of a person. It's a warning. And it's to be done in a spirit of gentleness and tenderly caring about that person, but also solemnly warning them that they need to repent of this specific way. A rebuke is a little more harsh. It's a little more edgy. It, the offense is more serious. The reproof is stronger than mere warning. It's now confrontation. It's now pointing out faults. Those two things can be done without a formal trial by any judicatory, whether a presbytery against a session or a session against a member of the church. So those things. Now, of course, they shouldn't be done based off of gossip. That goes without without saying. And sadly, these are the sorts of things that often happen on the basis of gossip. 
because they jump to the conclusion that the accusing party must be innocent, as opposed to presuming innocence on the part of the party who said nothing, they assume the innocence of the party making an accusation, which is the inverse of biblical law. Biblical law always assumes the innocence of the party accused and the guilt of the party who makes accusations. That's how the Bible works. It always assumes that you have a duty to prove your case if you make an accusation. You have no duty to do anything if you deny an accusation against yourself. But sadly, people don't understand the law. And so they'll tend to assume, oh, he's making an accusation. He must be telling the truth. Who, who would go around to slander somebody's good name? Well, lots of people would, actually. So, even in the case of admonition and rebuke, the biblical rule still, still applies. Not that you have a full-blown trial before you get to admonition. That's what we're saying we don't do. But the ordinary rules of the Ninth Commandment still apply. You still have to make sure that these are credible, whatever it is, unless you see it yourself. The session sees it. This person is obviously doing these things. It's open and known to everyone, in which case admonition and rebuke would be appropriate because there are multiple witnesses. Okay, suspension is where a person is deprived of certain privileges, whether a member or an elder or a deacon, for either a definite period of time or for an indefinite period of time. Um, the most notable one for a member would be suspension from the Lord's table until a specific pattern of wicked behavior is overcome and repented of. Excommunication is the most severe sort of um, censure that the church has at its disposal, and it literally is the key to exclude a person from the kingdom of God. That's why it's very serious, and it must only be done in cases where a person continues unrepentant. They will not repent of their sin. They will continue in their wicked way and will not listen to any admonition, any rebuke. Suspension doesn't do its work. They continue on in their evil way and will not repent. Now, Presbytery is the proper jurisdiction in the scriptures as we understand them for this kind of censure. Um, Now, there can be erasing a person from the rolls. That's a form of excommunication, putting a person on the outside of the visible church, but it is not necessarily to be done as a first line of defense, and also there are a lot of rules and shackles we put on sessions before they get to that place. There are certain things they need to do, certain amounts of time, certain steps they need to take. It's not just something you do to get rid of somebody, which I've seen happen before. And then deposition is where an officer of the church comes under censure. They can be defrocked by a trial or they can demit. They can say, please remove me from your roles. I'm leaving. And then section 7 talks about uh, procedural considerations, the announcement of specific types of censures, deposition of an elder or deacon, excommunication of any member, or indefinite suspension, as opposed to a suspension that's a limited amount of time, These are to be announced in the congregation where the officer serves or the member is a member. And then also a prayer is to be made for the recovery of that person um, in the case of, we don't want to bring this up just to bring it up, but for the recovery of the persons, therefore we pray to that end. 
Restoration is the goal of all of these things that we're talking about in terms of censure. There are times when a person cannot be recovered. A very sad case would, would be when a person is unrepentant, refuses, is excommunicated, and continues to be hardened in their sins. But the goal is restoration, that a person, after they have manifested their repentance and have been restored to the faithful, um, then that is announced publicly, and a prayer of thanksgiving is given to God who worked through the means that he has ordained in order to benefit that person. Um, Another thing is, we don't believe in restoration without any grounds to believe that the scandal is removed. So if the scandal still exists, then the restoration cannot take place. Okay, any questions about section D7 or I think maybe D6? We haven't looked at it yet. The trial, maybe we did. As far as questions, any questions? Either of those? Okay. Appeals, section D8. An appeal is where a person has had their case tried by a court and they don't believe that the court is correct. They can ask that the court above handle the issue. Um, If they think that the court has made a mistake, they petition and say, hey, can you help me with this, the next level up? Uh, Maybe there's something procedurally wrong or some error, there's some new evidence. They have to give a written uh, intention, section 2 talks about their intent to appeal. They have to lodge the appeal within 30 days after the clerk has notified the accused person that their transcripts have sent to the higher have been sent to the higher court. Um, if there is an acceptance of the appeal, they again the higher court will then give notice that they're scheduling a hearing. What time, what date, what place, and then minimum 30 days to appear. So they can't say 15 days later you have to appear for your appeal. No, you have to give them at least a month. Now, in a case of an appeal, the higher court can sustain the lower court, saying, yes, you did that, that was fine. Or they can sustain the appeal and say, yeah, he was right, you messed up in this way. This is not correct. This is not biblical. Um, They can send it back to the lower court and say, yeah, he's got a point. Look at this again. So there are different things that what's called an appellate jurisdiction. They can handle it in various ways depending on the facts of the case. Now, a person who is part of the lower jurisdiction that judged the first case cannot sit on the higher court. They can't be in both places to judge a person's case twice in two different... There has to be some level of independence, in other words. Now, in the case of an appeal, members of the court can dissent. They can also protest. They can say, I don't think this is right. We shouldn't be doing this. They can also file a protest that we have done this wrong. Here are the reasons why. And the dissenting opinion, they can require a vote by all the members of the court to say openly why they think this or that. Um, a protest by a member has to be filed with the clerk within 10 days of the judgment, so it has to be pretty quick. And then if the protest is received by that jurisdiction, they can choose to answer, but they're not forced to. They're not required to.
and that would be from one of their own number making a protest. And then section D10 concerns complaints. Um, a complaint is a written representation. It's not an appeal, it's not a protest, but it's something where you're complaining of an error or delinquency by a jurisdiction. And first you go, of course, just according to biblical rules, you go to the jurisdiction you're complaining about first, and you tell them, I'm complaining about you because you did these things and prevent... You present something in writing that makes the specifications and accusation, that kind of thing. And then also requesting that they make amends for whatever you believe they've done wrong. Now, this can be a session can complain against a presbytery, a member can complain against their session, a presbytery can complain against the General Assembly. Like, there are different, different organizations or individuals who can offer these kinds of complaints. Um... If the person that is complained against says, no, I don't think so, we're not listening to you, then the complainant, the person who makes the complaint, they can appeal it. And they have to offer the same exact complaint to the other jurisdiction or the higher jurisdiction and say, here's my complaint, they wouldn't listen, can you help me with this particular complaint? can't make it one thing here and another thing over there, in other words, it has to be the same complaint. And then the higher jurisdiction, they can request documents. Um, if they're going to receive the complaint, they have to give notice again of time, place, and date. And then if there needs to be amends made, the jurisdiction appealed to, the appellate jurisdiction, will have to say, here's how you fix this. Here's what you need to do to fix this. And then that's the end of our section concerning church discipline. Any questions about those sections that we looked at? No? Okay. All right, Directory of Administrative Rules. And as I mentioned, these are procedural. They're not moral. They're things that we do in order to assist the moral part, the spiritual aspect of church government. In the preface, section E11, we talk about how generally we use Robert's Rules of Orders, but we have some administrative rules for conducting our meetings in both presbyteries and general assemblies. And there's this whole thing about the way we conduct our meetings is pretty, um, as they say, administrative. Basically, order of business, call to order. Uh, the order of business is this whole sequence of the call to order, the quorum, invocation of worship, roll call, reading of previous minutes, etc. So, all of that is pretty standard Robert's Rules of Order kind of stuff, but are there any questions anybody had about any of the things administratively for the procedures side? No? Okay. And then administrative rules. We are required to have our General Assembly every two years. That's what our form of government says. Uh, all elders are required to be there or to be represented there. At the end of one General Assembly, the general location will be announced, and six months before that general, that next General Assembly, there has to be a specification of a place by the moderator of the General Assembly. Moderators of our Assembly are not a higher office, but they're one of our number that's chosen by the rest to represent us. They have a one-year term or one-cycle term in the case of a two-year General Assembly. And if he's to go beyond that, one year or one term, then 
three quarters of the members of the court have to agree that that's going to happen. Um, committees of our General Assembly are for one year only. We don't have standing committees. Some churches have massive bureaucratic standing committees that stay around all the time, and they never go away. So we don't we don't think that's proper. All levels of our church assemblies have to use the administrative policies that we have here just to keep things uniform. And then we have a section here about congregational property and dissolution agreements. This will happen if if the church has a building, they have to stipulate what happens with the building in the case the church goes defunct or if they leave the RPCGA. So we don't have a definite rule about that. It just has to be agreed upon. And then in E3, we have procedures for changing the Book of Church Order. It can only be changed by subsequent General Assembly since it's already been accepted by the General Assembly. Changes have to happen by the General Assembly itself. If you want, if a session wants to change the Book of Church Order, they have to go to their presbytery, and then the presbytery itself has to let all the other sessions know, and that petition is examined, and then they vote on it by session, one vote per session, are we taking this to the General Assembly? Then if the petition is approved by the General Assembly, then the majority of presbyteries have to cast a vote to say, are we going to take this up at the General Assembly? And each presbytery has to go to all of its sessions and say, do you guys think we should pass this motion on? Or this petition on, I should say. And the petition would be, we need to change this part of the Book of Church Order. That would be the idea. Please change this from saying this to saying that. And it's not clerical stuff, like you forgot a comma and you misspelled red. It's more, we're going to change the substance of this. It requires a petition that is approved by all the presbyteries and a majority of the, well, not all the presbyteries, but majority of the presbyteries and among the presbyteries, a majority of the sessions. And then if it's brought into the General Assembly, there are certain procedures that have to happen in order to accept that. And then again, we mentioned the clerical corrections as an exception. Any questions about the administrative rules? Okay. Directory for missions. And we'll conclude with this. So church missions. Um, I think there's a lot of wisdom in this portion. It Basically what it does is it points out that in the time of the New Testament, as well as in the time of the Reformation, missions began with the existing forms. Meaning, the, the apostles go to the synagogue. That's where they start. And it doesn't matter if it's in Jerusalem or Judea, or whether they're in Greece. They always go first to the synagogue. Meaning, there's an existing set of people and organizations that are God-fearing in some respect. They're not complete heathens, in other words. So they start with them. They go to them first. And they offer them a, a transformation of their faith from a lower level to a higher level, or conversion from unbelief, if they're unbelieving Jews, conversion from unbelief to faith. So those two things happen, and you see this all throughout the book of Acts. They go to the synagogue, they persuade them with the scriptures, some believe, some don't. 
The ones who don't are called upon to repent. If they refuse repentance, then they separate those who accepted the doctrines and they rejected the Jews and said, no, you, you can stay in your synagogue. We're going to establish a church. And they would divide off disciples who were at one point part of the synagogue. And you see this throughout the book of Acts. Now, at the time of the Protestant Reformation, the same thing happened. You had Roman Catholicism, much like it's Christianized Judaism is what I would call it. So you have the same kind of structure where there are a lot of people, some are God-fearing, some are not. In fact, often the people were more godly than their priests. That was the general rule, actually. The priests were the lowest and most wicked and vile people, and you might find some ordinary people who still believe the Bible and still believe the gospel, and it was the only place they could go. Where else were they supposed to go? So they would go to the go to the mass and that kind of thing. So often, what would happen is the interestingly enough, the magistrates in the time of the Reformation would receive the gospel before the priests would. Sometimes priests would receive it. And there would be a conversion among priests or clerics of some sort, monks, what have you, then the magistrates and other laymen. And then the priesthood itself would say, no, what are you doing? No, just like the Jews said, we're not going to receive the gospel. We're not going to listen to the scriptures. And then there would be a rupture that would happen. And there would be an establishment of separate congregations, much like happened at the time of the apostles with the Jews themselves. So, what our missions statement is, the introductory portion here, is that it takes wisdom going into a situation to know how exactly do we handle this. But the basic rule would be you start with a an underdeveloped form of the faith, as with the synagogue or Roman Catholicism, with genuine believers among the Church of Rome at that day, and you try to bring them up to a fuller understanding of the Scriptures. If they refuse... Then you separate. And that's exactly what happened in Acts. That's exactly what happened in the Protestant Reformation. In some cases, whole villages or, or states would convert to the Reformed faith. And the same thing. Whole synagogues might convert to the Christian faith, but usually it was divided. Usually there was so much stubbornness and hundreds of years of tradition that there would have to be a separation in order for anything viable to occur. So what we talk about here is starting with the existing Christian structures. Maybe it's an imperfect evangelical faith. Maybe it's Romanism. Maybe it's paganism. But you start with the basics and try to gather a group of believers and inform them of the truth of God's word and cause them to grow. So there are different strategies, in other words, for different circumstances, but the truth remains unchanged, the truth that is taught the truth that is preached. So we define missions in section 2 as uh, the evangelization of those who are lost and the establishment of churches. So it's not flipping burgers, it's not medical assistance, it's not you know kids' programs where you make silly crafts and draw nice pictures. That's not missions. That's fun. You know, that's vacation or it's a service project or it's flipping burgers like Okay, that's not missions. Missions is literally, go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you to the end of the age. That's missions. Okay, section three. A missionary is an elder, not a provisional elder, but a fully established elder, who has the right 
or the commission from his presbytery to establish new churches. Also, we talk about a mentor. This is not a scripture office per se, but this is someone that the presbytery says, we want you as a mature man to help these who are growing in their faith, who are seeking to establish their churches, men of, you might say, uh, very wise disposition who can counsel and direct churches that are new to the Reformed faith or even to the Christian faith if they come out of a heretical background. And then finally in section 5 there, we talk about missions agencies. This is where our General Assembly has approved of a specific body. Um, We can't be out there in the hinterlands of South America, but we know that there's someone good who's there. So we have, for example, in the Philippines... One of our presbyteries supports a mission work in the Philippines that trains ministers, preaches the gospel, that sort of thing. And so we use that agency or that seminary or whatever is there existing in that culture, primarily among indigenous if possible. We try to use indigenous men and we support them in that way with our prayers as well as financially. So that's what we were talking about when we say a missions agency. We're not saying the church is insufficient. We're just saying that not every place has established churches, and so we're willing to work with people where they're at. Okay, any questions about the section on missions? No. All right, let's close our time together in prayer.